0: in a kind of fertilizing way, and today we have a wonderful group from very different backgrounds, including two of my colleagues from the Helix Executive Committee. Um, We are the group that brainstorm these programs and then try to organize them as best we can. (coughs) The events today will be live streamed, so both in terms of um, knowing that sometimes a camera will be on you and when you ask questions, just remember this will be going out on YouTube and will be there into infinity. So uh, it's just good to remember your uh, what you want to project into the world. And um, just before I mention and give the backgrounds of the participants, I want to mention the two upcoming Programs. Um, the next two, at least, of the many that we're organizing, one is on January 19th on Mathematical Models and the Mind, and then on February 9th we will be having a roundtable on Status and what that means in society and in human relationships and animal and tribal systems. So two very interesting other events coming. Um, Today, we have an author, a filmmaker. We have a scientist and a professor of ethics, human and um, animal ethics. And we have two of the members, as I mentioned, of the executive committee. William Grassi, who is a historian of religion and a scholar and author. And Gerald Hurwitz, who is a psychiatrist and a professor of psychiatry at Columbia. And they're more familiar. I'm not going to read a great deal about their backgrounds. Um, They're all online. And then Josh Aronson, as I said, is a filmmaker. And he's currently, after a very distinguished career of many different subjects and topics, um, today in in his current time, he is making a film about the use of animals, specifically dogs. In the treatment of veterans with PTSD. Does it have a title yet?
1: To be of service.
0: To be of service.
1: As in service dogs. About service and dogs. dogs. Right. Wonderful. Right.
0: And as I say, he's done films in the past, um, some of which have been Oscar nominated, such as uh, The Sound and the Fury, about children who were capable of getting implants that would allow them to hear when their parents were deaf. He's done one called Orchestra of Exiles, which was about the formation of the Palestine Symphony, um, and which then became the Israeli Philharmonic, from musicians that were taken from the orchestras during the Holocaust in Europe. and a whole variety of different topics, which I won't go into now, but you can raise what you would like to include. And Elizabeth Hess is an author, and she writes about animals. She's the author of two books on animals. The first, Lost and Found, Dog, Cats, and Everyday Heroes. is a Harcourt Brace book. And the second, Nim Chimpsky, The Chimp Who Would Be Human, was published by Bantam in 2008. And that book was the basis for Project Nim, a documentary film by James Mash. And right now she's working on two book projects, one on the American Pit Bull Terrier, the rise of blood sports in the USA, and the racial construction of bias against the dogs. And the second is a book about the first primate research laboratory in New York, Lempsip, the Laboratory for Experimental Medicine and Surgery in Primates Associated with NYU. And she will tell you more of what she does. She's also the vice chair of the Animal Legal Defense Fund and a member of the advisory board of Out of the Pits, the first pit bull rescue in the country. She lives with two pit balls saved from a dog fighting ring in Alabama. And James Serpell is the Marie Moore Endowed Chair of Animal Ethics and Welfare at the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He has a bachelor's degree in zoology from University College London and a PhD in animal behavior from the University of Liverpool. He focuses on the behavior and welfare of dogs and cats, the development of human attitudes to animals, and the history and impact of human-animal relationships. He's published more than 180 articles and books. He is the author, editor, co-editor of several, including Animals and Human Society, Changing Perspectives and the Company of Animals, Companion Animals, and Us. And he's the creator of a widely used Canon behavioral assessment and research questionnaire. So you can hear all of the depth and expertise and the humanity of the group that is now going to begin their formal, informal discussion.
2: <laughs> well, let me, I, I thought downstairs that it would be fun to start off by introducing a, a childhood pet. Um, so, uh, I got a, a, a puppy from my bus driver in fourth grade and called it Fuzzball. Fuzzball was a border collie, and this is in suburban uh, wilmington, delaware and uh, in the 70s, the dogs were never on leashes. They just sort of wandered around the neighborhood and, and Fuzzball uh, was never never lived inside. She was mostly covered with ticks um, and um, but uh, she would chase cars and we would clock her at like forty miles an hour biting at the heels of cars up and down the neighborhood. But she was a remarkable dog and she was very, very loyal to me and she followed me everywhere on my walks and uh, waited for me when I visited with friends. And, um, you know, there was that line from, uh, oh, was it was a garrison killer or whatever, uh, hoping uh, to uh, live up to my dog's expectations of me. <laughs> but um, I've, I've had many intimate uh, animal relationships since then. Uh, including working with slaughter, so um, we can talk more about that. But I have a lot of philosophical indigestion when it comes to talking about the animal-human continuum. The a real tough, tough thing. Anyway, that's me. I'm William Brassi. You
1: know, I'm, I'm Josh Aronson, uh, and I love the theme of um, childhood pets. Uh, I have a different relationship, though, and it's interesting because the arc from my childhood relationship with animals... And the relationship I have today, having spent the last 18 months with veterans who have service dogs, it, it's quite an arc because I had traumatic experiences with pets because of my mother, who was not an animal person at all, but somehow we could have pets. I uh, had pets. Uh, the first one was a Springer Spaniel, the first one I remembered that was powerful for me. Uh, and I, it was very much my dog. His name was Julius. And uh, we had a lot of Springer's, and all of them named Caesars, different Caesars. He was the first of them, Julius Caesar. And when I went off to college, came to New York to go to college, and uh, I said goodbye to my dog, thinking I'd come back. And I came home for the first semester, and he wasn't there. My mother had him put to sleep because he had some illness and didn't want to spend the money to send him to the vet or operate on him or whatever was necessary. Same
2: thing happened to Fuzzball. Same thing. Yeah. College.
1: Uh, well, I was just, I was stunned that I wasn't even notified. That she, my my mother never it never occurred to me that there was a connection that might have been deeper than just some casual connection. But in fact, it was a very deep connection. Because like like fuzzball, I used to just go around with that dog on my bicycle and just knew we he was my pal. Mm-hmm. And he was he was exterminated without my even knowledge of it. And she continued that kind of relationship with my pets, very traumatically. And I. Really, just blocked it out. I did. And now I've been with, with many, many veterans who say that their dog has saved their life. The fact of having a dog in their life who's a highly trained service dog, the bond has saved their life. And so it sort of brought me back to its deep connection to these animals. And, uh, and talk more about that as we get on with our conversation.
3: Yes. Um I find it very difficult, actually, to pin down one childhood pet, because I always feel my childhood was something like the sort of Gerald, Darrell, my family and other animals kind of situation, where there was a sort of endless stream of animals went through my household, and I was usually the instigator. And my parents were remarkably tolerant of you know, the snakes, the lizards, the rats, the mice, the you name it, I had them. And... Um, I was profoundly attached to them, so much so that I think when I got to about the age of twelve, my parents decided there must be something wrong with me, and took me to an, uh, actually a psychiatrist in, on Harley Street in <laughs> and uh, he sat me down and he did uh, i forget what the test is called, where you draw a squiggle on a piece of paper and you 're asked to turn it into something more kind of comprehensive mm-hmm. and um, I saw this squiggle and instantly saw. Uh, a gorilla in the shape. So I completed the design of the gorilla. And he said, perhaps that's how you see me. And, and I looked at him, and he was a very fragile looking man. So I was very polite. I didn't say anything. So yes, I, I've just constantly been surrounded by animals. I'm still surrounded by animals. And I can't imagine life somehow without them. would be very difficult.
4: Yes. Uh my first pets were two turtles. Got them at the circus and my mother promptly named them gin and tonic. <laughs> and they lived for a month mm-hmm. and they were flushed down the toilet at their at the end of their lives. Something that was common. Um, Did you threw a lime t- in? <laughs> we we threw we threw the lime <laughs> in. And um After that, I had the same experience. Um, Our first dog um, that the family had was a little schnauzer named Churchill. And my mother bought it at Gimbel's department store. And I adored the dog. It was my dog. I walked the dog. And I went away to camp one summer. And I came back, and the dog was gone. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, where's Churchill? And they said, gone. We got rid of him. You went away. That was it. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So I think this was a fairly common experience.
0: Uh,
5: Very interesting. a
0: wound. Jerry?
5: Oh, so I had uh, one wonderful relationship with my uh, dog growing up, Dusty Dog, who uh, lived to the ripe age, I think, of 17 or 18. So it was my entire childhood. And he was um, a mutt. It looked like a Wheaton Terrier, but was very lively. And extremely quick-witted. I have to say that um, I really did experience him as being a person, you know, uh, uh, because of his intelligence and his engagement with everyone, with everyone, not just with me. He was very lively, but one of the funny little stories about how clever he was um, was that we lived in this row home neighborhood in Philadelphia and uh, there was a dog in heat, a female dog in heat, across the street, and I think there were... Because, there as, as Bill said earlier, a lot of dogs were off-leash in those days. They were collecting about seven or eight dogs outside the house, like with his vigil. And um, Dusty went out to join him, but I think at some point realized that if he went around the back, went around the block and came around the back, he didn't have any competition. So... <laughs> Now, whether or not that's what his thinking was, I don't know. Or he just happened to come down that block, but he, we were wondering, where is he? Because all the other male dogs are out in front. And so we said, wait a minute, maybe he's elsewhere. And so he had camped out behind, so he had less competition there. Um, really incredible how much, I think, many of us, when we engage with uh, animals, uh, can see them as persons. There's something, there's a quality of personhood that some of them have. I'm not sure they all do, but I know that uh, Dusty dog did.
2: If we pay attention, my uh, dog first year came in heat, uh, was had by every dog in the neighborhood, and uh, had a litter of twelve puppies. And my mother, who's a farm girl from uh, from Manitoba uh, in the Depression, she uh, we looked sorted the twelve puppies, took seven of them, and put them right in a bucket of water and drowned them. <laughs> And and that was a lesson. I said, "Mom, I'm sure glad you didn't drown me." But but but, but that's uh, you know so I, that's Only the that's the kind of um, attitude a farm attitude, and I, I admire that. You know, we have 900 million dogs in the world, um, and almost a billion cattle. We haven't even start talking about food animals. Um, and um, I I read a statistic recently that 95 percent of the biomass of mammalian biomass. Is humans and our domesticated animals at this point? So 10, 10 to five percent of the remaining biomass of mammals are wild animals. Uh, I, they can't be. They must have missed the rats in New York City, I think, in that count. But anyway, um, it, it's uh, you know we we have grown so much. It's a big business. What, what did you say? It's eighty.
4: Eighty-five million.
2: Eighty-five in the United States. Billion. I'm billion, sorry. Billion in the United States yeah. right now. And so these relationships with our animals, the ones we love and the ones we eat, are um, hugely complicated on so many different levels. Um, but you're, you're, in, you're involved in training. You're part of the business. Uh, to some
3: extent, yes. Uh, in the sense, I'm trying to train veterinarians. To train
2: veterinarians. To the
3: ethical. <laughs> Which, you know, it's, it sounds as though you wouldn't need to. But actually, I think um, a lot of... Uh, veterinarians have a lot of difficulty with this because on the one side they're required to um, represent their clients who are people with who have interests in animals which may or may not be beneficial relationships they have with their animals and on the other side they're supposed to be representing the welfare and the health of the animal and frequently those come in conflict and it's a big problem um, for a lot of these young people, they are, they're very conflicted, they don't know. Oh, well, they have their
2: own love affairs with animals. They have their
3: own, their own love affairs with animals, and they are faced with a client who walks into their practice and says, uh, I want you to put my, put my dog down. And, you know, the vet says, why? Well, I don't want it anymore.
2: And, and curiously, kind of my daughter, who's a vet, um, says that uh, the holiday season is a particularly uh, big time for euthanizing animals. Yeah. It's true because people. It's, have it's given also a
4: great kids. time to go to a shelter to adopt an animal because within a month after Christmas, the shelters are full wow. of extraordinary, purebred, mixed breed, every kind of dog and cat that mm-hmm. you can imagine from all that impulse purchasing.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's actually these are often um, animals that have been around for a long time for some reason. It's not not just, It's but, not, no, it's no, not they, just they, impulse purchasing. I mean, it's, it's both. It's, yeah. They it's give both, away you know, the old right. one
4: to get the new one. Or they, they, take, they buy the new puppy at the pet store and take it home mm. and it proceeds to, you know, eat through their apartment. And they don't want it <laughs> anymore.
5: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's amazing to me just hearing our stories about pets, how dramatic some of these stories are. I mean, like intensely dramatic. There aren't too many other things that many of us experience, I guess in our sort of everyday lives that are like these are really dramatic and intense stories about loss and killing right yeah intentional killing and um care- treating uh these beings as uh, commodities i guess right. of some sort yeah
2: well I, I let's get it on the table i eat meat anybody else here eat meat around the table so so right here i mean you know i've, I've had the Opportunity to see what slaughterhouses look like from start to finish uh, as a young man—that's pretty scary. Um, the smell and the noise and you know it stays with you for a long time.
1: What kind of slaughterhouse were you in?
2: Uh, it was beef in Belgrade. That's a long story. That's
1: pre—that's uh, pre, pre-Temple Grandin. Yes. Uh, so it's, it was really scary. Yeah,
2: it was a small-scale slaughterhouse. Yeah. But, um, and it's um, not
4: that much better with Temple Grandin either.
1: No. <laughs> really
4: really <laughs>
2: um and it's it, more about the film makes it look like it's a big improvement it, it, it's more about it, it i think her Fiction her stuff film? is more about how the, to no, hand, the
1: Morris documentary
2: how to handle the cattle yeah. uh, there you know the uh, the vets and the caretakers need to handle the cattle and yeah um, but um done that too so um you know and then uh, hand milk cows at a summer camp in vermont for instance mm-hmm. stuff like that and Um, So, I I always approach things from an evolutionary point of view, and in the evolution of humans, meat-eating is incredibly important Mm. in the growth of our brain and in the way that we live, and apparently our our ancestors, whenever they arrived, they hunted all the large mammals to extinction um, in uh, in North America, South America, Australia. So... um, so it's a really interesting question, and you know, how do we deal with that ethically? You're the, you're the ethicist. You eat meat. How do you deal with your indigestion?
3: Well, exactly. I mean, you, <laughs> you talk about philosophical philosophical indigestion. It's it's uh, it's an indigestible topic. Um, this whole issue of how you deal with these uh, moral conflicts in relation to animals. Um, so, and, and it's becoming more intense now, especially with the environmental concerns over CO2 and beef production, Well, that's, that's, specifically. so. That's a no-brainer this, at this point. This is, this is becoming a, a huge issue and will continue to become a huge issue going forwards. And, um, you know, people are now saying, you know, if you eat beef, you're, you're essentially destroying the planet. You shouldn't be doing it. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's adding an additional layer on the... The ethical concerns about the welfare of the animal, it's, it's, um, it's adding this whole component of what are we doing to the planet. Yep. It's a very, very intense situation, and, and we're in a state of flux. That's the other interesting thing is that we're—we've been uh, we're coming from a time when people really didn't think about these issues very much. And in a very short space of time, in a few decades, really, it's become a central topic of conversation. Everybody is thinking about it and agonizing about it at some level and uh it, it's it's you know these are interesting times we live in it's interesting to see how it all pans out that's if, if if
2: the scientists figure out how to culture flesh animal flesh without the feathers and the squawking and the legs would that be something that you would eat
4: oh sure I mean, you, you, you know, so you, you I I, I eat I eat all kinds of things, but I don't eat things where I know the animal has suffered to get on my plate. So I I mean, I happen to live in the Hudson Valley, so mm-hmm. I eat fresh eggs from my friend's farm, mm-hmm. and you know, I I do eat you know meat you know on that level, but there's no question that vegan food is coming, and it's going to taste good, mm-hmm. and it's going to taste just like meat because that's what vegans. Want, you know, uh, meat eaters think that's a contradiction. Right. But um, already one of the biggest um, vegan burger meat producers has joined forces with Tyson Foods, which is pretty interesting because Tyson is one of the biggest exploiters of chickens. As as I don't know if you've been in a chicken slaughterhouse. I've done that too. But. they say if you go visit all those slaughterhouses, you you can't still eat meat, but you are. <laughs> but it's certain kinds. I bet. I bet you want to know where the piece of meat on your plate came from.
2: Well, I don't. Wanna, I don't. Wanna, I, I never made a living in slaughterhouses. So I, I mean, I've visited yeah. them, and and yeah. um, at a camp, I was in charge of the. Why did you visit? Uh, it, was, it was a long story. Um, probably a good and one. and i and, and I lived on a horse and cattle farm, so i you know I've, i know what's and I've worked on dairy farms for a short periods so uh, I know what's involved i know what it means and and for me i it turns out that I also spent two weeks at auschwitz in nineteen eighty three teaching young germans about the holocaust and and the images of of, of the the slaughter the slaughterhouse and the holocaust are, you know it's the same motif and so You know, at some level, if we can do this with, if we can treat other humans like animals, is it moral to treat animals like animals? Yeah. So that's one level in which I, you know, I get moral indigestion, philosophical indigestion.
4: Well, I mean,
2: uh, on the other hand, I don't think utilitarian ethics works. No. So util, you know, the greatest good for the greatest, you know.
4: Right. The Peter uh, Singer
2: number, and I don't Um, think the hierarchy of consciousness works. I think. Pigs, the pigs that I've known, we had a pig pet um, um, back at the farm in, in Pennsylvania, where the kids grew up. And uh, certainly a lot smarter than the dogs, if we want to talk about an animal consciousness. Uh, pigs are very smart animals. And um, they're just
4: messy pets.
2: They're just messy pets. You need a, I don't recommend it for, although I did see a woman with a <laughs> small pot belly pig once in New York City.
4: There's a bunch of pigs that are therapy uh, animals actually in New York City hmm. working and um, I went to visit a AIDS hospice facility in New Jersey with a therapy pot belly pig and it was one of the greatest experiences of my life because when you're lying there feeling horrible and a pig walks into your room I mean what can you do but laugh and get up and say hello to the pig <laughs> and this pig brought you know, so much laughter and joy and hilarity to this incredibly depressing place hmm. that um, the pig was, uh, you know, a celebrity and welcome guest as often as this pig's handler could get there. And the pig was a registered, you know, Delta Society, I guess it's called Pet Partners now, um, therapy animal. Well,
1: what is, a, what is a therapy pig? How are they trained or what? what is it that they do differently from a normal pig?
4: Well, first of all, they're pot bellies, so they're small. They're not hogs. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't. You're not, not getting 400 a four hundred pound. pound pig out of your yeah. truck. Um, but they're, you know, as he, you know, he just said, pigs are smarter than dogs. Right. So they need to be housebroken. Mm-hmm. They need to um, be talk, socialized around humans, which is they understand a lot of language the same way I'm sure all of us talk to our dogs, and mm-hmm. they. They don't, they, they don't speak English, but they understand what we're talking about. Um,
1: My question was, is there anything different between a, uh, just a regular garden variety pot bellied pig with all these qualities and a therapy pig?
4: Yeah, not all animals are suitable to therapy mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And everybody gets a dog and wants their dog to be a therapy dog now. Right. And, not all anim- and to, to have a therapy dog or a therapy pig, the handler has, is doing the therapy, essentially, not just the pig. And it's a team, and you're trained,
2: you have to be trained in
4: the Pet Partners program to be that team in mm-hmm. how to relate to people. But the key to it is having an extremely well-socialized animal, and you can really socialize pigs. I mean, I also went to a nursing home with a donkey, and it, it, was, it was also a great experience. Um, the donkey wasn't so well housebroken. But the donkey walked into this nursing home like he had been visiting his relatives there for years. (laughs) And he walked down the hall, and he walked into each room, said hello, stood there for a few minutes, walked out, walked into the next room. (laughs) And, you know, there was one, you know, this was an amazing experience. We walked into this room, and this woman was lying asleep in bed, and the donkey walked over to her bed and stuck his head over the rail and snorted loudly, and I thought, oh, my God, this woman's going to have a heart attack. And instead, she sat up in bed, threw her arms around the donkey, and gave him the biggest kiss I've ever seen. <laughs> and I said, you know, you seem to know donkeys. And she said, yes, my husband was a veterinarian. We had I was around many farm animals, and um, this has been the best, my best day here by meeting this donkey. <laughs> I mean, there are all kinds of animals being used in interesting Situations now, and and I think the dogs um, are, you know, obviously they're the most common therapy animals, and dogs are so trainable and so willing to be our slaves in a sense, and
2: affection slaves.
4: Our affection slaves, and we ask them to be that um, often, but and, I think and,
2: and they enjoy it.
4: Some of them do. For the, most,
2: for the most part, they enjoy it.
4: I I think they do. I think. um... You know, I think dogs can be overwhelmed by people, too. Sure. Um, but, you know, there, there are more challenging kinds of animals that are used in different kinds of therapy sessions, mm-hmm. which are interesting. I mean, there's... Horses are
1: often used. Horses are often, horses
0: are often horses. used. Yes. Chickens. Yeah. Um, Par-
1: parrots are used.
0: Birds. Parrots. Uh,
1: Parents, yeah. I mean,
4: chickens, um, somebody who has a flock of chickens, who who has them in a school situation, mm -hmm. said that the chickens were really good because it's very hard to get to know a chicken. So therefore, if you're an adolescent (laughs) that has, for instance, a lot of trouble getting to know people, having to work out a relationship with a chicken is quite demanding, and she insists that everyone get to the point where that chicken will get on their lap, comfortably, and relax with them. Mm-hmm. And it takes some time. And the kids, of course, love the chickens.
2: Yeah. They never gave the chickens a chance. It was the only, it was the only you still can. The only animal I didn't feel bad about killing.
0: So, Josh, but. in terms of the animals that the dogs that are used uh, with the veterans, mm-hmm. what are their specific qualities? I know some of them make the grade and some of them don't.
1: Well, it, well, the qualities of the of the dogs that are selected to be finally uh, allowed to be service dogs and are trained through completion uh, have specific qualities. They're you know they're very good with children. If you know some dogs, no matter how much you train them, are not responsive to children or even are frightened of children, those are immediately disqualified. If a dog has problems in busy areas or noisy areas, they're immediately disqualified. If a dog won't get into a confined space under a table and stay there comfortably for a length, of time, like a dinner, they're disqualified because they can't be, apparently, they can't be, that's, they can't train that out of them. So, about 10% of the dogs they start with in service training uh, are rejected. And those are great pets to adopt because they've been trained so much more than comfort animals that they're just, they're quite phenomenal. Now you might even object to it because they're so responsive that they're almost, they, they lose their dogness you know, because they, they're, they're uh, so connected. But I was, gonna, I was interested to hear you describe what's, what the comfort animals are because it's a big controversy in the service dog world for two reasons. One, because people are getting fake service dog certification, and the reason they do that is they want to be able to travel with their dogs on airplanes. And, of course, if you have a dog that can't, shouldn't be on an airplane, and there have been accidents where which dogs... Which is most dogs. Which is most <laughs> dogs, right. But well-trained service dogs... Yeah. You can, you can take them on an airplane and they'll be under a seat even a labrador retriever will squeeze under the chair in front of you for two hours and won't budge it's remarkable to see yeah and they come right out so uh so comfort dogs won't do that and uh, and they get dogs and they try and do this with them but what's important about the service the distinction between the comfort dog and the service dog is all the things you said that uh A comfort dog has, service dogs have, but they have something else that's profound, which is the ability to bond so completely one-on-one with their companion. So it's that bond that works in a very deep way to help them unwind the symptoms of PTSD. Um, It's just the absolute unconditional love that those dogs feel one-on-one. Now, any dog can feel that, but in a service dog, when you combine it with so many other things... It's a profound um, therapeutic tool. Yeah, It's very powerful.
2: Also, also used in prisons so mm-hmm. very effectively. So I, I'm interested in that in we're so inhumane to the animals, but our, our pets humanize us. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is going on? When, wh- why, why is this relationship with a dog or a cat or a pig or whatever, wh- why do, why does that, uh, what, what is it that we get from them that we don't get from other humans?
1: Well, it's, I think in terms of service dogs with people, whoever, it, 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 it might not just be veterans. It can be, you know, service dogs can be, you know, blind people, obviously. It can be autistic children often mm-hmm. get them. It's just complete, absolute devotion and what they call over and over again, you hear of unconditional love. And, uh, and how powerful the unconditional love is in the veteran community is because a lot of veterans have moral injury, as they call it today, and they have a lot of, uh, guilt and shame, which are two Mm -hmm. powerful things because they've both, they've been commanded to, as 19 year olds, to do things that are morally reprehensible, or they've seen things that are so awful that they're, uh, embarrassed and they're shamed and they're guilty, or because their mates have died. And what runs through their their mind is what they could have done to save them for the next 30 years. So they are so filled with shame that they can't release it, and they end up often as shut-ins. And all over the country, there's hundreds of thousands of veterans who are shut-ins. And they get a dog, a service dog, and the dog has to go out. So the first step is he has to take responsibility for the dog and take the dog out. And he learns very quickly that no matter what he does, even if he's weeping, even if he's crying, even if he's he's having a nightmare, uh, if he's just uh, sullen, the dog will love him. And the dog will lick him and wake him up from nightmares and be his companion. And so gradually, he lets go and starts to love the dog. It it seems to be pretty consistent. And it's the first time he's felt anything in a long time, he or she, because a lot of women vets have PTSD as well. And uh, and that's a powerful mechanism. And I once asked someone I was interviewing in the film, who was, who was a uh, a writer who knew a lot about dogs. I said, "Well, why isn't the unconditional love of a spouse equally good for that?" And he said, "Oh, you know the old joke: you put your wife and your dog in a trunk of a car and close the trunk. Open it an hour later. Who loves you at the end of an hour?" <laughs>
5: okay. Well, it's, they're it's excited. Just, <laughs> like, they're excited. Dad, you again. <laughs> it's and you again.
1: your wife won't speak to you for two weeks, right? <laughs> so
4: two <it's>, weeks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: maybe, yeah. more hour, right? maybe more than an hour. So it, so, but it's a very good story because yeah. that defines what unconditional love is.
5: Well, one of the things I think that happens in a lot of psychiatric illnesses, and certainly PTSD, is among them, and uh, I, I'm not sure, sure people um, generally appreciate this very much, but... It's that caregivers get rebuffed often. I mean, there are efforts to sort of cheer you up or encourage you or to get you to do something like get outside or get out of bed. You're met with a lot of uh, pushback. It could be in various forms. We might imagine someone with PTSD could be irritable, but there's all sorts of ways people get pushed back, and their psychiatric illness keeps them from uh, responding to the normal social cues. Um, and the failure of those social cues often demoralizes the caregivers. So the caregivers give up s- to some degree and withdraw, and they start to dismiss the, th- dismiss the, the sufferer. So a dog or another animal who's trained in this way just keeps it up. It does mm-hmm. not. They're not as readily discouraged. They take yeah. it many more iterations, right. Right. and that's the what you're calling unconditional love. Right. Is that I, you could you could mistreat me, I still think you're great,
3: right? Yeah. And also they can't they can't talk, which I think is that's very right. critical. They can't. You Talk know, back. ask you how you're feeling. Yeah. They can't uh, criticize the yeah. fact that you're not getting out of you're bed. You're still in when, bed. You know, you know, know, yeah, and yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. The <laughs> animal is is, it's empathic, but it's not. It's not verbal. I think it's very critical. Yeah, it's, it's,
1: it's, it's, very, it's very clear, though, that the dogs can take on and understand your yeah. feelings, yeah. And, and they are yeah. very empathic. So if you're sad or you're sick or you're in bed or you're not getting out of bed, the dog will come to you and will curl up with you, will lick you, will encourage you to, and make you feel better. Because, of course, when you pet a dog or look into the eyes of a dog, there's an oxytocin release, mm-hmm. and it feels good. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, very powerful connection that happens with a bonded animal and a human. Mm
4: -hmm. My dogs love it when I'm sick in bed all day. They (laughs) just love it. They just curl up and are so happy. But not to take it away from the psychological realm here, I think the other big attraction to dogs, I mean, there's so many dogs in New York City now, it's just mind-boggling. And I think we live in a world where nature is receding. Certainly the wilderness is receding, the waters are rising. And I think having this dog in our homes with us is a bit of the wild, mm-hmm. literally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what I like about my dog is dogs are they're unpredictable. You know, I can't really always predict what they're going to do or what's going to happen when a stranger walks into the house. or You know, they, they take you out of the human realm mm-hmm. and and back to, you know, a wilder moment and bring that into your life. And I think that's A lot of why city people love dogs. Hmm.
1: It's the connection. Yeah. Yeah, that's right.
0: And what what do you ask on the test that you've developed? The canine behavioral assessment and research questionnaire. Yeah, uh,
3: actually it came about because I I wanted to collect behavioral information about dogs and they're very difficult to study because they live in people's houses. And you can't go in there and say, do you mind if I sit in your house and observe your dog? Um, and uh, so I was looking at the sort of psychological literature, and found, of course, that with child psychologists, they have the same issue, and uh, very often they resort to questionnaires, so surveys which they give to parents and give to teachers and so on to ask them about the child's behavior. So I thought, well, let's develop something like that for dogs. So I did that. and um,
2: What do you ask?
3: Well, it's all sorts of questions about how the dog responds to different things in its mm-hmm. environment, and... It, it tries to persuade the owner to be as unbiased as possible in their evaluation. So you don't say, you know, is your dog friendly? you say, how does your dog respond specifically when this happens, like a stranger comes to the door or whatever, and uh, try and pin them down to very specific things. It's a 100-item questionnaire. You can go online and complete it for your I dog it. <laughs> and um, it'll churn out a little chart that will tell you where your dog lies in relation to other dogs in our database. We have about fifty thousand dogs in the database now, so it's a good sample. So, w- along
5: what dimensions? Like, how are they
3: evaluated? Uh, aggression, fearfulness, anxiety, uh, excitability, attachment, mm-hmm. and attention seeking, mm-hmm. uh, separation-related behavior. All the you know, pretty so, much so the are gamut.
2: You, are you collecting the eugenics information too about the breeds and?
3: Uh, I am collecting breed information. We're doing some very interesting research on breed differences in behavior.
2: Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, of course, there are differences, but I, I, I think uh, dog breeds are a terrible thing. What <laughs> really, I just think they're really terrible. You Why? Mean the, the creative ones they're, they're Just, you know, there's, um, I think, they, it's eugenics. It's bad for humans, it's bad for dogs. And um, the, the more you mix things up, the better. Dogs
4: are not humans. No, I I mean,
2: I, I'm talking about genetics. Just, I know. Just... But,
4: um, you know, I mean, I think it's not a bad thing to think of your dog as a person, mm-hmm. to treat your dog as a family member, but they are animals. And um, one of the things about the, you know, I, I think it's great that the dogs are being used so heavily with vets right now and for the PTS programs. And I can't believe at the end of the year I must have gotten... 20 direct mail pieces asking me to give money to programs for PTS dogs for vets. They're springing up like, you know, mushrooms after the rain everywhere in every community. And there's a good reason for it. I think the reason is it's working and it's expensive. But I would still ask the question, why aren't we giving our vets health, decent health care? And now what we're doing is we have these private organizations throwing dogs at them when the hospitals are overcrowded, they, you know, vets can't see doctors, and, and essentially we treat them not well. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think we, we tend to use dogs as a kind of band-aid for certain problems, and we're using them for everything now. We're, yeah. Cadaver dogs, bomb dogs, drug dogs, PTS dogs. I mean, we want dogs to do an incredible amount of work for us that we don't want to do.
3: Uh, no, but dogs. I'm not sure I agree with I, that. I, I,
4: don't think okay, I, good. I don't think I agree at all.
1: <laughs> at all. I, actually, the truth is also dogs like doing those things. They exactly. love having jobs. How do you jobs. know that? Well, you can see in their behavior and the way they respond. Maybe dogs
4: like sleeping all day in front of the fireplace, too. Well,
3: Some do. No, they, they have been. I mean, we know. have done studies of, um, for example, therapy dogs and whether or not, you know, that there's a welfare problem in using dogs for this purpose. And actually, every single one of the studies that's been done to date suggests that the dogs are enjoying it. Like work. For them, like it's a much worse experience going to a veterinary hospital than going to visit people in a human hospital. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. that kind of makes sense that when makes you sense. understand the dog's perspective. Cause I think the from, the human a perspective from
1: the human perspective, not the VA perspective, but the human perspective, the idea of therapy, you're absolutely right. The VA is letting us down, the government is letting, us, letting soldiers down in every possible way not universally i mean the, the the va here in new york city is quite good there's very good therapists in los angeles it's quite good but those are two out of thousands and many many uh, soldiers that i interviewed just report horrible stories about the va but um, uh, most of the therapists that i interviewed and most of the soldiers i interviewed found that the the service dogs in conjunction with good therapy and the appropriate meds as a as a trio of approaches is a very good uh, approach and of course there's something now called the MAPS program there's programs using MDMA working with vets that's been fan- very very powerful and some of them also have dogs so I think there's a lot of modalities of treatment for PTSD that are being utilized and, uh, and the dogs are simply part of it. One of the vets said you know some people have crutches, some people have you know walkers, some people use drugs, I have a dog. It's a, it's a medical modality that's organic that works very well for me and has brought me back to life and a lot of people report the same
4: language yeah, Now that's the human it's, perspective it's, it's a good thing I'm and, not saying and, it's and, an you're, and
1: you're thing. arguing maybe it's not good for the dogs from my no, observation for some of the dogs yeah, I don't yeah. think
4: it is good and there are instances yeah. when dogs have been pulled away from vets I mm-hmm. don't know if you've come across any of them no, for your film not. because the dogs are considered endangered danger for so their so lives. I, I just want to point
2: out that there are what 900 million dogs in the world right now and half of them are feral living on our trash in an, ur- yeah. you know, in an oh. urban environment, yeah, or in, a, in a, around humans, and in we're the, breeding dogs we're, for these programs, and mm-hmm. and and that um, so you know uh, uh, our dogs in New York City are treated pretty well. So one thing that I tell anybody who wants a dog is two are better than one mm-hmm. um, because they're very social, and to leave a dog alone in an apartment is torture mm-hmm. for that dog. And we have a neighbor I keep telling her. And the dogs always bark and I say two dogs are better than one and you know they don't get it so that you know just a bit of practical advice mm-hmm. dogs hate being left alone In
6: fact
4: all species pretty much do well they're
2: especially I mean cat doesn't mind as much being left alone but it' better have two cats right yeah or a cat and a dog or whatever so so just for the humanity of the, our pets uh, just understand a little bit about their psychology the truth of the matter is humans or mammals too, we have mm-hmm. feelings, we're very social, and humans don't like being left alone. And that's why, one of the reasons why a dog and a person who, uh, who's otherwise isolated it, it's, uh, is so healthy, not just <laughs> mentally healthy, physiologically healthy in every way. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, don't, don't leave your poor dog locked up alone in an apartment, not oh. a nice thing to do. I wanna go back to a comment you made
5: earlier, Bill, which was this, I think rather bold claim that pigs are much smarter than dogs. <laughs> so I wanted to flesh that out. Uh, no no pun intended. I wanted to know well, on, on what basis, I'm not challenging, I think it's, it's no, a I generally think, interesting I, conversation, I think, I think which is sort of how do we knowledge. know what
2: it means? Is it smartness in one me, dimension? People in the barnyard yeah. would know that.
5: But what, they know, think, but what do they know about that?
2: Well, they, let's they see. They, like, they, uh, they, and
5: also understand, I don't think smartness is on one no is a one dimension. Exactly right. Of, right, right. I,
2: I, there's no uh, IQ test for pigs or dogs. Right. Maybe not for humans. So anyway, you can take what you want to, but they, just they're, rats. they they are <laughs> they're just rats. They are very smart animals. Right. And you know, it, again, if we took the Peter Singer hierarchy of consciousness model of the ethics of uh, animal eating, then then uh, squid and octopus and, and uh, cuttlefish no uh, would way. go right out the door because yeah. they, are, uh, they are extraterrestrial intelligence, uh, interterrestrial intelligence that we barely understand, but they're clearly very smart and sensate. But again, I don't think um, uh, the, the Peter Singer version works. I don't think utilitarian ethics works. I think the, the only thing that can work in our relationship with animals uh, is a sacramental attitude. <laughs> and uh, and I, I say that as somebody who, who's not really speaking as religiously, I just think that, that we, we eat animals, we sacrifice their lives, it's the, called the great eucharistic law, eat and be eaten. Uh, all of us will die and uh, the atoms will be recycled and uh, the greatest honor we do to the animals that we kill is to, honor, is to pay attention uh, and, and, and be grateful and a little bit have some indigestion. Um, and, and uh, about it. So I, 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 that's how I frame well, it. Not
4: to mention kill them humanely.
2: Well, so, so, that, so this is where... And thank this, them when you kill them. And thank you when... The, so this is, again, I think we're not the first humans to fall in love with our animals. I think that's been going on throughout human history and is reflected in mythology and, and a whole bunch of other things. So, um, and we're not the first generation to treat animals poorly either. So um, no.
4: Ever but, since but, the domestication of animals, they've been treated poorly. Essentially, I mean, they've been you know rounded up and used for work, and, and, and
2: excess ones have been killed. And and, and along the way, uh, farmers and herders have fallen in love and with those animals. Yes. Um, and and one of the things that uh, they have to teach veterinarians is how to recognize bestiality, right, as a problem. We don't like to talk about it, but it, it's there in our culture. Um,
4: well, I think vets need to be allowed to love animals and save them. And one of the, you know that one of the things about vet school is, you know, you take these live animals and you cut them up and you throw them in the bin, and or not. I mean, are you at Johns Hopkins? Is that no? Oh, okay. University was Pennsylvania. of we don't Pennsylvania. Do that so much at vet school. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> They don't, they, do the, they don't do they don't dissection as. No, public.
4: but they have a huge school of research researching alternatives to using animals in mm. all research, including vet schools.
3: At Johns um, Hopkins, they do. I mean, uh, the vet schools are increasingly um, trying to avoid uh, doing practice surgeries on live animals, so that's going out the window. Um, it may be still present at some vet schools, but it's no longer present at mine. That's um, good. But when I first got there, it was they were doing that and. In fact, it was the students who eventually put a stop to it. In other words, the students said, enough, we don't need this. Um, and eventually the faculty were forced to agree. But mm-hmm. there, you know, there was a tradition within the faculty that, you know, oh, well, we couldn't send these students out to practice veterinary medicine unless they had cut up a live animal. So uh, that, was, that was where it came from. But now it's recognized, it's recognized that they, they can learn that stuff on the job under the supervision of a trained veterinarian, they don't have to do it in vet school.
4: And and we don't use chimpanzees for car crash studies anymore either, um, mm-hmm. for instance, or you know certain it, kinds of toxicology studies because uh, we recognize it's now because right. there's a law that says we can't.
3: And, and <laughs> we can give them surgery practice by taking them out to animal shelters where they help uh, spay and neuter unwanted animals prior to being adopted, Tufts so does that. They're, they're learning the, the, the job skills in a humane and respectful way, I guess you would say.
1: Elizabeth, I was struck by your, your new book, um, which is on the uh, uh, cultural bias of having pets or animals.
4: No, 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 no this, this is a book on the, on the pit bull. On the pit bull. Which is inherently a mixed breed mm-hmm. and a mutt, as, so it's not a purebred dog. Unless you talk to the Brits and they think it's a Staffordshire Terrier and it's a purebred dog.
1: But I thought I heard that there was a cultural bias. In, okay, yes, so I think there is. To I mean, specifically, you mean?
4: Absolutely. I see. okay. I mean, one, one of the problems with pit bulls, I mean, there, there are more ordinances across the country saying pit bulls can't live in this neighborhood um, not
2: inher- than there are not about golden retrievers. Dogs. What? They're not, dogs. they're not inherently violent dogs.
4: They're not inherently violent dogs. There's just more of them mm. because they're bred on every corner. By drug dealers and whatever, um, but they're, they, you know, all these pit bulls that are flooding every shelter across the country, people don't understand. These are the losers. These are the dogs that the dr- that the drug dealers and the dog fighters don't want, mm. because to get one dog worth training to go into the pit mm-hmm. for a, a fight, you know, you have to breed hundreds, mm. because most of them don't want to fight, and you mm. have to get a really gamey. You know, the kind of dog that's going to end up working for the police as a cadaver dog or a bomb dog or a, because they're just so e The police are using a lot of pit bulls now because mm. if you get a really, you know, hyper, gamey dog and you put them to work, the dog excels. It's got a lot of energy. You know, mm. training them to fight each other is an ordeal. costs a lot of time and money, and most of them won't do it. Mm. So... It's just, you know, they're a huge problem in this country, and when most people and most buildings, for instance, say no pit bulls here, what they often mean is no poor people, no people who might be associated with drugs or crime, often people of color. I mean, the the word pit bull kicks off all kinds of racial and economic biases.
2: The same way, same way that German Shepherd...
4: German Shepherd used to, right, that's right. for sure. Mm, right. Yes, exactly.
1: Because for me, I have a bias, but only because of what I've read in the papers. There are enough pit bull incidents, pit bulls going after someone or tearing someone's face apart, and you've read it enough so you think, well, it must be in their their DNA that they're just aggressive animals.
4: No, there's no no aggression gene. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a a very well-known dog trainer named Ian Dunbar who sort of was the first trainer to deal with quote dangerous dogs and when asked as he always is what is the most dangerous dog you ever met he tells a story about an older woman who had a Shih Tzu who she was extremely close to and the dog slept here every night and the dog was older around seven or eight years old and one morning she woke up and the dog she startled the dog and the dog woke up and bit the nose off her face Mm -hmm. and You know, that was the most difficult dog that Ian Dunbar ever worked with, and that was a 15-pound shih tzu. Mm. And if you look at at dog statistic bites, at real dog statistic bites, you will see that the pit bull's not the number one biter. Mm. It's little dogs. It's the little guys. The thing is, their mouths are so small, they don't do so much damage, Mm. but it's the little dogs that bite. Mm.
3: Why is that, do you think? Probably frightened. What is that? Probably frightened, mm-hmm. easily frightened. Oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's defense. It's self-defense. Yeah. Oh,
1: interesting. Yeah. I thought you, when I heard the description of Ruk, I thought it was about how, because uh, I came across this, that culturally in the African African American community you find less dogs in their homes, and uh, I asked, and in my research and the work I've done in my film across the country, there are very few African Americans that have service dogs. Several, but, but amongst, you know, 95% were white or Hispanic. And I sort of, asked, and I asked around, and I finally, these people, these African-Americans that had dogs, I sort of worked through them, and I heard two different things. One was uh, African-Americans in America don't have dogs because police use dogs, and the dogs in the inner cities are frightening to them because they're trained and aggressive, so they're afraid of dogs. Uh, And the African-Americans said, no, that's not true anymore. It was in the last generation. And So I thought your book was sort of on that topic because of the description of it somehow. I didn't get what it was. But but I found it a very interesting subject. Because we were, of course, looking for African-Americans and Hispanics to have in our film. And it was hard to find them with service dogs.
6: Hmm.
4: Have you found women?
1: Yes, we have a a lot of women. Lots of women. lot of women, yeah. Yeah. But, of course, the cause of, of PTSD in most of the women is rape. Not, not
6: man. Mm.
1: Mm. The statistic is horrific. Ninety percent of women in the military have been sexually harassed, if not raped, not raped, but ninety percent have been harassed. So.
4: Well, I'd want a pit bull or a German shepherd by my side in that case. Yeah,
1: with yeah. <laughs> that Shih Tzu, with that Shih Tzu, right? <laughs> of course, I don't know how the Shih Tzu would do against a lead sergeant. <laughs> Okay, there's a nose. Yeah, there's a nose, but that's pretty high up, though.
0: (laughs) Are there a different group coming into training to be veterinarians? Say that again. Is there anything changing in the applicants to train as veterinarians?
3: Well, there's been a huge change over the last 30 or 40 years uh, from men to women. So now we have uh, the incoming classes of veterinary students at vet schools are about 80% female. Mm-hmm. And they used to be 80% male, so it, that's been a, a massive change, and that's brought with it, I think, these many of these changes in attitudes to animals and a resistance to uh, buying into the old sort of exploitation position um, and being m- much more compassionate and concerned about these types of issues. Um, I mean, actually, you often hear a lot of the older male vets bemoaning this, mm-hmm. saying, oh, God, you know, they're <laughs> feminizing the profession, you'll hear them muttering darkly. But um, I think it's all for the good, actually, in
2: general. Well, my, my oldest daughter is a vet, and uh, so I followed her career uh, at Penn. And um, uh, I think uh, they have a harder uh, – I understand that they have a harder time getting uh, vets who want to do agricultural animals. That's true. Uh, it's all um, either equine or small animal, uh-huh. and uh, so if you, uh, it's more competitive than medical school in terms of getting it accepted. Uh, it's a growing, growing industry, and um, if you do want to get into uh, vet school, say you want to do agricultural animals, because it's a leg up. There's just all, all the extension services around are lacking veterinarians.
3: It's a hard life, though, it's being a large animal. Then it's, a um, very, it's very hard da- life.
2: It's actually very dangerous too. It's dangerous and yep. it's very hard work. Yep. Very hard work, yep. and, and
4: yep.
2: you get no sleep. But but it is an unusual training because, uh, unlike human medicine, you have to study multiple animal species, and um, including reptiles and birds. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, it's a very very interesting training. I, I'm interested about what what are uh, what, again I'm always interested in evolutionary things, but. I think you know for a long time uh, in the West uh, we thought animals as sort of machines um, and uh, now we don't we seem to acknowledge what's obvious that they have a, they're sentient beings with a lot of emotions and, and feelings and um, and I don't know how much they are uh, think about the future but um, uh, but uh, we're also starting to recognize ourselves as uh, not the height of rationality but, but emotions are are how humans communicate and and uh, our feelings come prior to our rationality if at all
4: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> um, and, and so um, uh, it, I just think it's um, it, it you know on the human animal continuum how important is it to see ourselves as animals today uh, and what does that help us in terms of uh, dealing more effectively with each other and the world around us. So,
3: I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm just another animal on some level. Um, and... Um, well, that seems to have been the sort of the whole history of the ideas. Is, well, we have this idea that we started off with this massive gulf separating humans from animals. that And it was really a sort of philosophical gulf. Mm-hmm. And that, that gulf is sort of slowly being narrowed and now... We allow some animals to kind of jump across the gap and join us as family members, but not all of them. Uh, but they they represent sort of ambassadors, as it were. They represent that other group of animals out there, and I think that's an ongoing process. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you look at the uh, if you like the discourse on animals historically, yes, at the level of educated people, there was all this talk about. How animals were completely different from humans and they didn't have souls or they didn't, and there were mechanisms or whatever. But at the popular or folk level, I don't think people ever believed that. I right. think they lived with animals and they knew that animals were sentient and had feelings and would respond in particular ways in the same way a person would. So I think there's always been this not only, well, that sort of tension between the people who actually knew the animals and the intelligentsia who were kind of pontificating. Right about animals. Um, well,
0: fairy tales are filled with snakes who know, exactly. and fox who know. And
3: and, and people who yeah. turn into animals, and animals that turn into people, and, mm-hmm. you know, these, the gulf is obviously very permeable. Uh,
0: and children, as we've heard, right? some of the major emotional development is, you know, loving the stories about animals, even not just the animals around you. Mm. Little girls with horses, etc.
3: Absolutely,
5: yeah. Well, it seems what what is important about trying to understand as best we can what sort of consciousness or experience animals have um, to uh, inform how we treat them. I think there's one one of the larger arguments against, let's say, slaughtering animals is they're conscious or they have some sentient being. I'm not saying that's a complete argument, but that's something that is brought to bear when we talk about how we treat animals. And um, I, I find it interesting that when, when you ask, when I've asked people to talk about whether you think animals have sentience or not, and that uh, across a wide range of ty- animal types, there are those I think you feel, well, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. How could you see it otherwise? And there are others who still persist in thinking in this sort of Cartesian way that animals are missing something that humans have that makes them um, uh, less, less than. And earlier, Betsy, it was really interesting because I used the word personhood to describe my re- relationship with Dusty. Um, I meant it in the sense because we, we didn't dress him up or treat him, you know, we didn't wear human clothes. Didn't or we, put him in diapers. We didn't kiss him on the lips, which I find <laughs> disgusting, but anyway, with animals. But, but anyway, no, we didn't treat him like he was a person, literally. But but I had a sense... I Now the truth I, I, comes out. Yeah, it's quite, no, But I actually think it's an interesting question whether when, you try, when we try to decide whether animals have any degree of consciousness, is it possible that we are projecting our own consciousness onto them?
4: Ah, uh, the issue. Right,
5: so could, could that be playing some part? Because there are those who think in terms of human consciousness, leaving animals aside, that we're actually projecting our own sense of consciousness. You know, this is sort of... Dennett's view of consciousness it's sort of it's an illusion that we are putting together a lot of sense data and other thoughts that go around our heads—and then we say we have a certain personhood. We're we're, we're imposing that. And I'm not, it's not a view I subscribe to, but it's out there. So the question I think is also with animals: how much of what we uh, view as being the sentience of animals are a projection of our, ourselves? And that even extends to my experience of Dusty as a person, because in some ways. I look back and think of him as being like a human, and I thought, well, he didn't talk. Why do I have this persistent feeling that I had that sort of, the verbally intimate relationship with well,
4: him? Well, this mm-hmm. is the thing. We draw the line between humans and animals at language,
5: mm-hmm. and
4: what that means is complicated. That's right. And um, I think that the issue of personhood is, to a large extent, a legal issue, because corporations have personhood And animals are objects in the eyes of the law. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I don't think all of us, especially those of us sitting around this table or in this room, need to be convinced that animals are intelligent, that they're sentient beings, that they're capable of loving us and vice versa. But the law needs to be convinced of that because animals have very few protections and New York State is one of the worst states in the country as far as animal cruelty laws go. And um, so, and I let my dogs kiss me in the face. <laughs> but I probably shouldn't. Um,
2: Actually, um, uh, you're a much greater risk of infection with a human bite yes. than yeah. you are of a dog bite. So, yeah, um, there
4: you go. So, Kiss your dog goodnight.
2: Yes, absolutely. We've trained
5: all my family members not to bite me but <laughs> but any- anymore. Uh, I'm
4: sure you all know about the non-human rights project and Stephen Wise, who's trying to go through the courts to get the status of personhood for animals. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, last Friday, he just argued for an an elephant, which is in the Bronx Zoo, an elephant ironically named Happy, who's been alone in a cage for, I don't know, how many years, 40 years or something hmm. insane. And he's trying to go through the courts to argue that the elephant should have the status of personhood, that elephants cannot, that it's torture for them to be alone. What you're saying about adopt two dogs or two cats.
2: More so for elephants. Elephant more
4: so for elephants. And this this elephant has one acre to move around in, which is very small for an elephant. Mm-hmm. And it had a companion. The companion died. companion was never replaced. And... Um, the case was argued on Friday. There was a writ of habeas corpus in, in a previous, in a lower court, and it went through, and the case is now going to be moved to the Bronx. So,
2: so I, I have a problem with invoking uh, human rights um, uh, l- language. I am no problem with the welfare of the elephant and that we have an obligation uh, to promote that. But how pro- do you pro- get around that in the that? I just, I, without I that? Well, first off, we have to recognize that human rights are a human invention, and they don't exist in nature. And, I mean, uh, and it's, it's moral progress, and I'm in favor of that. But uh, there's a history of human rights, and it's a, it's a useful fiction, just like money is a useful fiction, right? So, um, so uh, and I'm in favor of that, that discourse. But I think when we take it into our domesticated animals or wild animals or fish, I just think it leads to enormous confusion. Uh, because now we're taking things that are different and we're treating them the same, and so some of the, the this is why I always have indigestion philosophically. So, so, and I don't think uh, animals have the same obligations to us that we have towards them. So, if a bear wants to maul me and eat me or whatever, that's that's what bears but do. Do
4: we have any obligation to that bear?
2: Uh, yes, on, a, on another level, yes, we do. They uh, and but not to the individual so much as the group. So I think uh, species extinction is m- much greater problem than the, than the suffering of any individual wild animal. And I think the way we treat wild animals versus domesticated animals, like, so, uh, 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 b- bighorn sheep get, get uh, pink eye, and it's well within our possibility to treat the pink eye in national parks or whatever. When they get pink eye, they fall off the cliff and die. And so there's a question: Should we be intervening in the care of wild animals? And and uh, this is where you know we, we got to maybe let natural selection do its thing. I don't know, uh, but that that's you know how how much are we responsible? We're habitat for sure, um, but on an individual level, I don't I I have a different problem with that. I think. So anyway, that's a, that's one of the big debates in animal ethics yeah. and environment. I think the legal scholars are somewhat.
5: Uh, uh, the legal scholars, they were people who are making legal motions to help <coughs> animals like Happy are trying to think, well, how do we get an entree to the legal world? And I guess this is like a, 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 the more, most expedient way they've come up with, which is to try to define them that way, and it may or may not be a good idea. I mm-hmm. kind of agree with what what you said. Well, I, think, I, think I understand
3: <laughs> the motivation, too. The courts also recognize that this is a, a slippery slope, you mm-hmm. know. If we give you know personhood to a an ape or an elephant what's next and and then you've got the whole animal industries saying whoa you know this has to stop
4: i hate that slippery slope argument because it just stops progress
3: oh i agree it stops progress but it's it's a very real problem for the courts
4: yeah because
3: they can see the downstream effects of their rulings and and the implications are huge huge For every level of society.
0: I want to just switch it a little bit in terms of our focus by asking Josh a question, because we're talking about the human-animal continuum. Mm -hmm. Are there soldiers or veterans who apply for a service dog who flunk? Many. And why? And Uh what, what happens? Can you tell us a little bit of what, from the human side, makes it possible or impossible to relate
1: well it's not a matter of relating it's a matter of um, so soldiers uh if you raise a service dog and you have a facility for raising a service dog you've been with that dog sometimes the first year is with with prisoners and then the prisoners are, uh, they take the dog away from the prisoners which is very traumatic for the prisoner although they know it's coming and then for the last year they get this training so the dog is probably worth twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars a and they have immense love and respect for these animals that they've trained so carefully. And they want to make sure that the soldier will take care of the dogs and take responsibility. So soldiers coming back from war with PTSD go through a huge continuum to and it starts with rage and anger and fear and often alcoholism and drug addiction. And there's a lot of um, things that come up with it that many of them deal with. And uh, if you're uh, addicted to drugs or if you're an alcoholic, you will not get a service dog. So they're basically turned down if they're not prepared to care for the animal. And they're grilled very carefully about that. But if they are prepared and, and they qualify, um, they can get the dog.
0: Yeah. And other instances where still their nervous system is so compromised mm-hmm. that they're not able to relax enough to relate to the animal Well
1: they don't own the animal for a year mm-hmm. when they give them this, this is I, I can't speak for all of them but the four different facilities we worked with they're all the same in this way that this, the, this, the, the soldier gets the animal for one year and they have to write reports bi-weekly or monthly about how it's going mm-hmm. and they have to come back and report and come with the dog and they're they're evaluated that's
0: interesting and at the yeah, end of the they year
1: end. uh they're either given the dog or they take the dog back hmm.
0: so they're trying to instill a reflective process yes, in that. yeah very
1: much so and the dogs and the and the soldiers take responsibility for that because they don't want to once they get the dog and they bond with the dog and they fall in love with the dog they don't want to lose that dog mm-hmm. because the dog is giving is freedom mm-hmm. because they can actually go out go somewhere, go to a store or at some other place, not as something other than three in the morning to avoid people, you know, to, f- to feel the connection that many commands that the dogs have give them a real f- uh, feeling of safety that they won't have a flashback because the dog will know it's coming and be able to stop it and block it for them. Or if they're on the street and someone's coming too close, they can simply say block and the dog will immediately go in front and separate someone coming so that they don't have to feel someone's coming too close and they don't overreact and attack them and end up in jail, which happens a lot. So this, the relationship is, becomes profound. Mm-hmm.
2: So, so there's a huge change in the philosophy of training dogs, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, which, is, it, which is that you really never hit them or spank them. You only use positive reinforcement. Mm-hmm. No and choke. No, no choke collars, no, you know, and, and, um, and this is something that would benefit humans too. Right. If we understood that, he, if, if you know, positive reinforcement is how you get good behavior, mm. and negative reinforcement doesn't work. And and I and I and I'm thinking of this in relationship with the Asian elephants that I got to know in Sri Lanka when I lived there for a year, because all there are about 300 temple elephants. There's about wow. 3,000 wild elephants, and about 100 elephants who live in an orphanage as a herd with two matriarchs, and, um, they, but the temple elephants are all tortured, it, that's how they train them, they separate them as children, and then they're tortured, uh, and uh, the mahouts uh, every now and then, one, one is killed, and then I'm thinking about all these, um, uh, the, the captured herd that lives in this orphanage, about a hundred elephants, they breed in captivity, and the possibility of, of training elephants with positive reinforcement, which seemed to me like an obvious no brainer but but you know when I grew up you you would hit your dog if they did something bad, you'd stick their nose in their in their um in their you know, if they defecated inside the house or something like that. that's how you trained a dog and that's that's all not
4: it's all gone mm-hmm. all gone
2: mm-hmm. and it works much better so you I, you know you're involved. I just want to point out that there's a whole new philosophy about training dogs yeah. <laughs> than, than what I grew yeah. up with, and, and it, it applies to humans, too. <laughs> yeah, it's some it's of
3: parallels actually changes in, you know, uh, training of children, or mm-hmm. how people advocated training children, same sort of process seemed to get. They
1: don't out. allow choke collars anymore?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. if, if you if you smack <laughs> your child in Sweden now, uh, you can be arrested. You really? know, yeah. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Perhaps the most profound, one of the most profound experiences I've had was at an elephant research center in Southern Kruger Park in South Africa. And all the houses were up on stilts with sort of moats around them. And one night, there was this tremendous thundering sound. And a whole group of elephants came in and went toward the research center patio where they had skulls of recently found elephants oh. and they recognized that the it was a baby elephant and a female elephant that had been from their herd and they had a funeral mm-hmm. the elephants had a funeral around these skulls mm-hmm. and since they were chipped the researchers knew indeed these were from from the herd the and herd. I, That has so impressed me. Mm -hmm. And the other was a giraffe that knew that the wind was going to change when its calf had broken its leg, and when the wind changed, the lions would come. But I don't think I've ever experienced, um, in a collective way, even with Italian wakes and Irish wakes, (laughs) that level of just instinctive That's, grief, hmm. mm-hmm. not reflective grief. Instinctive
1: grief. Can you, you witnessed this.
0: Yes, oh, it must have I been heard
1: this. So moving, uh, yeah, so yes, moving.
2: yeah. yeah. Uh, elephants are extraordinary creatures. Uh, you know, in, in the list of weird things uh, that animals figure out that we don't is that in the 2004 um, tsunami in uh, South Asia, uh, you know, the elephants and the birds—they just all took off they you know they they went inland they they knew somehow they knew long before the waves ever hit and just again what you know there were humans that died but there weren't any elephants that died mm. um... and so you know there's uh, how how does a dog recognize that you know their their owner is going to have an epileptic fit it smells it and the owner doesn't know it right i mean so, they it. smell it, it they right smell it. Mm. so um, you know there's uh, There are things that they are sensate to that we are not. um. Mishaw.
0: We might open this up for questions from the audience. And if so, would you come up and speak at the mic and identify yourself?
7: Uh, It's been wonderful. Uh, I'm a, a dog... And of late, I've become a cat lover, and there hasn't been very much discussion about cats here. And I've rescued three feral cats, one from uh, the woods in Pennsylvania, who was just crazy. And I uh, wanted to bring her to New York City, and, and I talked to people here in New York I said, no, you can't bring a feral cat. She'll destroy your house and everything. And one of them gave me a big cage, and I put her in the cage because it was going to be a cold winter up there, and I knew that. And I brought her back to my... My apartment and I'm happy to report that uh, she became the most charming uh, Manhattan lady. Uh, she liked her martinis about five o'clock. Uh, I think that uh, cats are very different than dogs I and mean, I've had lots of dogs and I've had lots of cats. I've lately become a cat person but they're and I th- I would like to hear what you have to say about that because they're they're more mysterious they're not I don't think they're trainable at all. You know, dogs are, of course, trainable. I mean, they they they're domesticable, but uh, I don't know. if You can, I mean, that my cat now never does anything that I tell her to do. I mean, she, but, so and i I find them to be enormously intriguing and interesting, even maybe more than my dogs, which I love dearly. But last time my dog died, I just could not face uh, you know having another dog that would pass like that. It was just so heartbreaking. I would just like to hear a little bit of discussion
2: about. Well, I love cats too. Cats, I believe it. I love cats too. I do too, but <laughs> you're,
4: too. you're not going to find too many therapy PTSD cats. No.
3: <laughs> no, and I think for good reason because, um, you know, we've we've selected dogs for uh, the as animals that seek social approval. They want our approval. We they, that's them that what way. gratifies them. Cats, <laughs> they're not interested in yeah. social approval. They 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 want approval, but it's not the same. It's not the same. They're not prepared they'll, to... They'll let us pet them and purr on yeah. us. and they'll, yeah.
2: they'll, but, uh, They're will delight when we feed them. and uh, they don't show that same... Sometimes they'll play with us a little yeah, bit, but uh, not for long.
7: Yeah. The cat I have now will not get on my lap. Mm-hmm. But about three o'clock in the morning, she'll jump up on the bed and lay on my chest, oh. yeah. and she looks right at me and starts to lick me. me. I, that's the other thing I want to ask. You know, when, when a cat licks you, there is she curves. trying to eat you, or is she trying
3: to? Uh, good, question.
1: Uh, good question. Is she giving you? A, I think it's affectionate? I, I think she's going for the salt. <laughs> What's that? I think she's going for the salt.
0: <laughs> um, that raises a, a question I'd like to ask you. I have read that cats can be feral. Mm-hmm and then if they're domesticized they can become domestic and if they go, that it's actually different brain, parts of the brain and different systems that they can negotiate both the wild and a domestic situation is that so?
3: I don't know if that's altogether true because you can have the same situation with dogs so you, know, you mentioned earlier that you know most of the world's dog population is what they call nowadays free roaming they're not really feral because people own them but the expectations in many developing countries is right. that your dog lives outside and it's free to wander about, but it comes home from time to time for food and what have you, and so dogs can navigate this as well. And and cats, I think, are very similar. I mean, they <laughs> their history is very different as well. I mean, people, uh, I think, in the early years wanted cats primarily to be around the house and the farm to keep down the rodent population. They weren't seeking social contact so much with cats. And I think the cats have moved in on us rather than us exploiting them for, uh, uh, you know, attachments. Um,
4: feral I just wanted to say that there's a kind of confusion about feral cats. People think that feral cats are a different species than domestic cats.
3: Yeah, not at all. They're
4: exactly the Mm -hmm. same Mm -hmm. cats. And, you know, feral cats were often, you know, cats that were kicked out of their homes for... One reason or another, and they got used to being stray. Just as stray dogs can be very hard to catch because they're used to keeping people away. Well, and if, if
2: if they if they re- still they're not fixed and they reproduce, they they breed like vermin. I mean, they. When I lived in Jerusalem a long time ago, the feral cats, about cats cats they yeah. were in and out of the garbage everywhere you went. It was like you know you walk past a garbage container and ten cats would jump out. It was yeah. really. Uh, so you know, and in Sri Lanka where I lived, it's, uh, there were three three types of dogs: there were house dogs, um, uh, neighborhood dogs, and then there were feral dogs. And uh, but what was curious to me that there wasn't a culture of talking to dogs, hmm. and that was that was very very strange. Maybe
4: people still spoke to each other. <laughs> no,
2: I I, I I think there just wasn't a, a, a lot of history of of uh, house dogs or whatever. But yeah, but. Um, you know uh or there's a kind of you know an autism that some cultures might have about you know speaking to animals or whatever but but uh you know with the elephants you know they're uh, about uh about 30 people are killed every year by elephants and about 30 elephants are killed by people every year and it's all farmer you know conflict uh, the elephants come some bachelor comes in tears up the lawn they try to shoot the elephant if the elephant comes back you know, they don't kill the elephant. Comes back and they know exactly who shot them, yeah. which house it was, and they go after that house. And uh, and you know, so I'm thinking, well, yeah. if, do if the people knew, the people knew that these are personalities, that they had names, that, yeah. and they and they could follow them on the internet or whatever, then they could, everybody agreed to use names and talk to them, uh, and, and to sort of negotiate between two intelligent species how we can get along yes. on an individual Good level, idea. right? Yeah. That's, and, and so somebody needs to equip the villagers and, the, and, and uh, standardize the, the language and, and uh, signaling or whatever, uh, realize that each one of these elephants has a personality, a history. There are that, groups
5: trying to do that. That,
2: that, would, that would go a long way to um, uh, getting rid of human-elephant conflict. Yeah.
5: Um, I think the other interesting thing about the question about cats and dogs... Is goes back to the question I was trying to pose before about pigs and dogs, and that is animals, different animals are good at different things and are clever or not clever, in the case maybe, in different ways, depending on their, I guess, their genetics, where they come from. There's an interesting new development in, some, uh, in, the, in the study of plasticity and neuroplasticity in brains, and not just human brains, in which the notion is that you know, we inherit certain genetic Codes that actually provide some degree of plastic, a plastic response. In other words, doesn't you know it's the the, the difference between some sort of uh, hardwired instinct and then some general drive that can sort of be expressed in many different ways. So, uh, an animal going from what we're calling a feral state to a domestic state, <clears throat> sort of is is what's allowed by their you know nervous system, the plasticity that's part of their nervous system. So if they're in this environment they can adapt in this way and then if they're in that environment they adapt in a different way but it's interesting to think the the in terms of cats and dogs is that the dogs wish to to uh, uh ingratiate themselves had to start with the fact that the foxes or whatever animals wolves that from which the dogs were domesticated showed some inclination that way you know after all these generations of cats that have been domesticated they still you know there are cats that are more friendly we'll get on your lap but and people always brag about that, you know. My cat is like a dog, but um, you know that that doesn't seem to be within the range of their plasticity yet. They could be bred to do this probably in the future. But dogs were easy to do that way. I think it was in the range of their possibilities, and with cats less so. So I think so.
8: One comment on, <coughs> on the legality of animal rights is: we live. Um, it's sort of an abnormal time where animals don't have any legal representation. But in the Middle Ages, uh, they would actually try animals if they trampled crops or destroyed or even killed a person. They'd have a trial, and uh, sometimes the animals got off, mitigating circumstances, or they were too young to know it was wrong to eat the baby, you know, or whatever. So, uh, post Enlightenment, you know, the Newtonian mechanical worldview that we've inherited, by the way is an anomaly in human history, where in the past people lived most more closely. They, they had a more intimate relationship with animals, and it was reflected in recognition of the animals having some sort of legal representation when they transgressed and damaged human property. The other thing, you mentioned plasticity of the brain. You mean epi, Epigenetics? Well, perhaps,
5: yes. Okay. I mean, not necessarily, though, because the idea that some, in some of these instances, the, the genes are conferring a trait that has some degree of plasticity built into it. You see, okay. so, that, so if this, then that, if that, then that. So okay. yeah.
8: Because right now, in evolutionary theory, um, they've discovered in the last maybe eight years neo Lamarckian inheritance acquired characteristics. Mm-hmm. So, like this gentleman who was talking about cats. If he had children, and he has an intimate, perhaps, love of cats, they might be predetermined to inherit that orientation towards cats because his brain was triggered in such a way emotionally mm-hmm. to like that particular animal. You know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting that, that people now are having very intimate relationships with cats where in the past they were a barnyard predator and just kept around until maybe 1930s as a barnyard thing, animal to kill, you know, uh, mice and rats. And now people are taking them into their houses and trying to domesticate this inherently very predatory animal and and treat it like a dog and hope it responds. Um, The other thing um, is I'm wondering, I haven't heard anybody talking here about... um, the effect of zoonotic uh, infectious um, bacteria or viruses trans- transmitted to humans from domesticated animals and the effect on our brains where our brains may be conditioned by those bacteria to respond a certain way to the animal and I'm thinking of Toxmos Plasmosis Gondi you know the kind of came out with uh, that article and book by uh, Kathleen uh, Laverty.
2: Yeah, so about 10% of humans are probably infected. with.
8: No, it's more than that. uh, Worldwide, it's around 60%. In America, it's around
2: 30%. uh, And and with negative consequences. It's not good for your health. Um, It's an interesting um, uh, virus that... uh, uh, mostly in cats and rats and mice. But well, we,
4: compared to the revelations this morning in the New York Times about Johnson's and Johnson's right, yeah. baby powder, yeah. baby powder right. yeah. which has asbestos in it, um, I'm not so worried about toxoplasts, it, 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 although maybe but, I should be. But,
2: but, but let, let me just say that uh, in the history of domesticated animals, that's where most of our communicable diseases come from. Cats. So, uh, no, no, so, oh. cattle and I sheep see. and, I mean, all... You know, most of our um, um, uh, big diseases, we evolved... But not cancer? No, no, I understand, Um, but communicable diseases. uh, Actually, cancer uh, is caused by
8: viruses, a lot uh, of
2: it. In some cases, that's right. Breast cancer especially. um, Thank you for raising a whole bunch of issues. I don't know if anybody else wants to... to, um...
3: The animal trials one is something I looked into a while back. There's a very interesting guy called... Bernard Chassinet, he was a medieval French jurist who made his reputation, actually, by going around France and defending animals in animal trials. Um, He got a tremendous reputation for doing this, and he was uh, one of the people who was very good at getting animals acquitted. He um, he got a, a... Um, a swarm of locusts acquitted somewhere in the south of France um, because his argument was that they, they weren't able to control their craving for the crops. So they had gone in there and eaten the crops and that if they... In the future, people wanted locusts not to eat their crops, and they had to provide the locusts with something else to eat. That's and um, the judge bought it, apparently. He said, yes, okay, sensible. we'll let them off this time. Um, <laughs> yeah, were they incarcerated the so that
1: was. they were in jeopardy?
3: No, they, were, they, they didn't come to the court, the locusts. Yeah, exactly. They didn't show up for yeah, their and own trial. Tried in um, Yeah, exactly. But it was, a, it, it was an interesting time because it wasn't clear that people actually thought the animals knew... Uh, knew about their own culpability, it was more a view that if, was, if a crime was committed, then somebody had to pay the price for it just to kind of maintain the social order mm-hmm. and so they went through these elaborate trials, which really they were sham trials, but some some of these jurists got very 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 um, famous and successful as a result hmm.
2: I think we have time for one more question mm-hmm.
3: yeah. Mm-hmm.
6: I'm Henry Earl. I live over here on York Avenue between the Animal Medical Center and New York Hospital, and I've been struck over the last
2: Which one do you tend to go to?
6: (laughs) That's what I was going to ask you. Bet your
2: insurance on the show. Uh,
6: Over the last uh, many years, I've been struck with the sophistication of the techniques diagnostic and therapeutic at the Animal Medical Center, and I've wondered about informed consent at both places, but uh, particularly at the Animal Medical Center. So, of course, there is no informed consent, but procedures are extremely costly and often unproven, and um, the outcomes are often very unpredictable. Uh, The other area that I'm interested in and related to it is end-of-life care for these domestic animals Mm -hmm. and how the decisions are made.
3: Yeah. Um, so there is informed consent, but of course it's for the owner. Um, so owners are given a consent form. So if any procedure is planned that's going to be costly or potentially dangerous to the animal, the owner has to sign off on it as the proxy in the same way that a parent might sign off for a very young child. Um,
2: the, the difference is the, the cost is all on you
3: It is, and, also client, if, and it's all optional. And, and if the doctors screw up and your animal dies, the best you can hope for is the, <laughs> the replacement value of the animal, which is not yeah. of great benefit 100%. to someone who, for whom this animal is the thing they love most in the world. Uh, but that's another story. Um, but yes, we have now this situation where the veterinary profession has, actually under pressure from clients, has all the modern medical techniques and treatments that are available to people at a similar cost, although it tends to be cheaper for animals, even though they're doing the same treatment Um, and um, we get this situation now where a lot of animals are on their last legs keeping them alive is probably cruel and the owners won't let go, the owner says do everything you can spare no expense, just do whatever you can and the vet says well there's nothing more we can do well just try it And and we have the situation quite frequently now in our our, our veterinary hospital at the University of Pennsylvania where everyone, the staff, the nurses, everyone is putting pressure on the, the, the veterinarian to euthanize the animal. And the veterinarian says, I can't because the owner won't let me. And it's the owner's property. And because it's the owner's property legally... I have to do what they say or I can refer them to another veterinarian but if I refer them to another veterinarian that's going to be even more cruel because we can at least give, keep the animal comfortable so it's a, a very difficult situation now
2: yeah. and, but I think one of the differences is that a lot of the veterinary services medical services are actually superior to what we get
3: as humans I can't speak to that <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was a lively, very compelling, very enlightening conversation. We really appreciate you being here and sharing your experience and your knowledge with us. Thank you, for And thank you all this for, for this
3: coming.
2: The sitting, just, just every day, get help from people <laughs> Amen. <laughs>